Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Isaiah chapter 36. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh unto Lake, uh, from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Elikim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shepnah the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? And I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Then over to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, just one verse. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now let's take three statements for our text, two of them from the reading in Isaiah. The fourth verse, the last phrase, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? And then a phrase from verse 5. Now on whom dost thou trust? And then a phrase from Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.10. We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. To understand the scripture that I read from Isaiah, I think we need to go back just a bit and and get the history behind the words that we read. Assyria has become a great nation, a great military power, and they have set out to conquer all of their neighboring nations and have been doing a pretty good job of it. They have conquered on the left hand and on the right until they now have presented themselves at the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah is the king of Israel. And he looks out and sees the armies of Assyria surrounding the city of Jerusalem and sends out three men to inquire of the captain of the hosts of Assyria just what is going to happen, and they have a conversation. And the captain says to the representatives of Hezekiah, 
Why is it that you resist our efforts to conquer you? What is it that you have confidence in that you would even attempt such a thing? He says, are you trusting in Egypt that they're going to come to your rescue? Is the Pharaoh of Egypt going to send his mighty army up here to Jerusalem and oppose us? Or are you trusting in a God that some God or other might oppose us and keep you safe? And he refers to all of the countries that they have conquered thus far and reminds Hezekiah that every one of those gods has fallen to his army. He goes on further to rub salt in the wounds and said, Now are you really going to trust in your God? Down in the tenth verse of that 36th chapter, he says, Why, it is your God himself that told me to come down here and conquer you. In what, then, do you have confidence? He said, Why, well, I will even give you 2,000 horses if you have the capability of putting riders on those horses, illustrating their extreme weakness. Jerusalem had no military power. They couldn't put riders on the horses. Were they given to them by the enemy? All of the other gods had fallen. And he says, even your God has told me to come down here and do this. And he yelled up to the men who were sitting on the wall all around the city and began to cry out to them, and these three men who had come out to meet the captain said, Shh, don't talk to them in our language. Speak to us in your language. We understand it. We won't, don't want to disturb our people. And he cried out even more fervently to the people who sat on the walls. And he said to them, If you will surrender, Every one of you can sit in his own house and under his own shade trees and eat of the fruit of his own vineyards. Without hardship, everything will be easy for you until we come and, and take you to our land that is a land similar to yours where you'll have the same benefits. But if you don't surrender... And he makes it very pointedly in the scripture, if you do not surrender, we will starve you out to the place that you will drink the own, your own urine and you will eat your own body wastes. That's how severe the problems you will be facing. Now that's not a very good alternative, is it? Surrender and you'll have it easy. Do not surrender and you'll wish you had. And this is the same dilemma that people today face. It was the same dilemma that Christ himself faced when he was in the wilderness, and Satan came to him and said, If you will worship and serve me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of this world. 
Satan paints a picture that makes it seem logical that one ought to serve him and reject Jesus Christ. It seems logical in the minds and the hearts of people who are not Christian that it is beneficial and more to our liking and an easier way of life to refuse to accept Jesus Christ than it is to receive Him. Living the non-Christian life seems the way to go. And that's why there is a broad road leading to destruction and a narrow road and few people that travel on it that leads to eternal life because it's much easier to travel the well-trodden path than it is to go that narrow, steep, difficult road that leads to eternal life. That's why the scripture asks the question, what would a man gain or what would a man profit if he would gain the whole earth but lose his own soul? Most of our efforts and our energies goes to making a place for ourselves in this world to having a life of ease. But the Lord asked us, what would it profit you if you would succeed in that effort to the place that you would in fact have possession of all the world? But in the end, you lose your soul. What have you gained? Somehow or other, we seem to ignore the value of the soul and place the value of life upon the physical. <coughs> but if one will look at it, in the end, what does it gain you? When the time of death comes to you and to me, and our bodies are put in the grave, and our soul goes to whatever its destiny might be, what has it profited us? All of this that we have gained in this world, if we in the end have lost our soul. Well, Hezekiah was very concerned about what they ought to do. Should they surrender? Or should they resist? He did one wise thing in his life, at least. He went to church. He went to the temple. And there he got down on his knees in private before his God, and he prayed an earnest prayer. The first thing he did was confess his own personal sin. That is the first thing that a person must do if they're going to be a Christian going to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is to confess unto our Heavenly Father our sin. If you don't believe that you have sinned, you will never be saved. And if you will not confess your sin unto our Heavenly Father, you will never be saved. 
Hezekiah prayed and he confessed his personal sin and he confessed the sin of, of his nation. That's over in the 37th chapter of Isaiah and you'll find those things. And the Lord heard his prayer of confession and the Lord responded. And the scripture says that on the next morning when the Assyrian army got up from their night's sleep, they arose and behold, they were all dead men. Now, you have to look at that a little bit. The dead men didn't rise and discover they were dead. Those who were alive arose and discovered that, as a matter of fact, the number was 7,080 were dead in the army of the Assyrians. They packed their bags and went home. God had been victorious. The nation had been saved. The individuals in that nation were saved because of the prayer of a man who confessed his sin. There's a lot of times when people were saved because somebody was willing to believe. And that was when Paul was on a ship and about to be shipwrecked. He was a prisoner in chains, and they were just about to sink, and everybody was scared. And Paul stood up, and he said, Gentlemen, be not afraid, for I believe God. But ship was saved because there was a man who believed in God. He had put his trust in Jesus Christ, his Savior, and then the Eternal Father. Now, let's ask a question. In what or in whom are you putting your trust? In whom dost thou believe? Now, when we want something physical to depend upon, for example, I use this as an illustration, if we want to buy an automobile, there are some criteria that we use to decide whether or not we're going to buy the automobile. First of all, we, uh, at least this is what I do, I find somebody that I can put my trust in who, who is the, the owner of the automobile. I want to be able to depend upon him and his word. If I can trust my automobile dealer, then that's where I'm going to, you see, to buy an automobile. And then, if, if it's a used automobile, we start testing that thing. You know what we do, at least what I do. I start up the motor, I look under the hood, I look in the trunk, I kick the tires and all those things that, that a person normally does. My brother one time went out to buy an automobile. He went down to the, to the lot. There was nobody around, no salesman anywhere, so he did what any person would do. He kicked the tires, and, and when he found one open, he got in it and looked it over and raised the the hood and started, if he could find keys, and there weren't too many keys, started it up and all of those things only to discover that he was in a public parking lot and not on a used car lot. Now sometimes we go to the wrong place to look for our trust. That's why I'm asking you, in whom or in what are you placing your trust? The scripture says, Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 12 verse 15, that a man's life consists not in the abundance of things that he possesses. Are you putting your trust in what you can accumulate in life? What is that going to gain except some temporary satisfaction? 
The rich man looked out over his fields and he saw them ready for harvest and his barns were full. And he said, I know what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns and then I'll say to my soul, take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry for you have much goods laid up for years to come. This is what most people are doing. Looking at what they can physically accumulate and they're putting their trust in those physical things. But the Lord says that a man's life does not consist of these things. There's something more important than physical possessions. Galatians, Paul speaking, says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to his spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The question that we need to settle in our lives, what have we done with our soul? In whom have we placed our trust for its security? This is what life is all about. Now, I've had people say to me, and you've heard it, and maybe you have said it, I don't know. Well, let me tell you, preacher, I'm just as good as some of your church members. Well, now, I'll respond right back. Let me tell you, fellow, that's exactly right. I'm sure you are. There is no magic about being a church member. There is nothing that brings one's soul security because he joins a church. They'll go on and say to me, well, now, if I go to hell, I'm going to have lots of other people down there, and probably some of your church members are going to be along with me, and I'll say, I agree with that. There will be very likely in hell members of the Tanita Baptist Church. Because your membership does not guarantee your place in heaven. We're going to have to have Baptist Convention down there in hell, because there's going to be lots of Baptists down there, and Methodists, and Presbyterians, and all the others. We could probably have a pretty good revival in hell, because there's going to be lots of church members there who, are going to, who will need to be revived. Unfortunately, it's going to be too late at that point. What I'm saying is, a person who says, well, I'm just as good as your church members hasn't said anything about the condition of their soul nor his soul. We're not talking about external things like church membership. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the unrighteous. I came not to save those, but to save the lost save those who have not given their heart and life to Jesus Christ. Now really what a person is saying when they, when they make that kind of a statement, they are simply saying, well now I believe that I'm good enough to get to heaven. That's what a lot of church members believe. Some of you very likely this morning, hear me out, some of you very likely even though you are members of this church, believe that your goodness is going to get you to heaven. If you believe that, you're going to have a rude awakening someday. A rude awakening. 
The Lord said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, all right, let's look. How righteous were they? They did everything that they could possibly imagine that the church expected of them to do. They never missed a service. Some of you couldn't get into heaven. You've got to have righteousness that exceeds the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They always attended church. And some of you don't do that. They gave of their financial means all that was required and more. Some of you don't do that. They prayed on every street corner that they could find to pray on because they thought that was the thing to do. So you don't do that. Matter of fact, let me ask you, have any, have any of you ever prayed on a street corner? You don't want to make a fool of yourself. Well, I probably I haven't either. But he says if our righteousness is going to save us, it's going to exceed the righteousness of the Sadducees and Pharisees. And we could go on with those things. Jesus came to save those that were lost, like Mary Magdalene, who, out of whom Jesus cast seven devils. He came to save people like the woman who had been found in the very act of adultery. And you will remember that they did not bring the man when they, when they brought her. They let him go. It was okay for him. There was a double standard, but the woman was accused of uh, and guilty of death if she committed adultery. We set our standards and say, oh my, no Christian would ever do this. And here comes a woman, and she's there waiting to be stoned. And the, the people say to Jesus, now what do you say? The law says she's deserving of death. What do you say? And the scripture says that he just simply started writing with his finger in the dust on the ground. And when he got done writing, he stood up and said, now he that is without sin cast the first stone. And there were no stones thrown. He came to save the sinner. I remember in my pastor at one time a man by the name of Jake. Jake Farah. Never will forget him or his wife. When I came to the church as pastor, he was teaching the junior high boys class, and she was teaching one of the younger classes. And in the process of my visiting in their home, they told me something that I have never forgotten. They had a teenage boy, the only child they had. The teenage boy was very devout. He went to church every Sunday without question. He had accepted Christ as a young man as a result of going to Sunday school. In the Sunday school class, he'd become a Christian. He never failed to go. His parents did not go. They didn't think they needed to. They explained all this to me. Jake said, our boy every Sunday morning would say, Mom and Dad, why don't you go to church with me today? And they would respond, well, son, I don't think we'll go today. One of these days we will. One of these days we will. So this went on and on and on. He said, then, one day our son went hunting on a Saturday. And as he was crossing the fence, the gun discharged, 
and he accidentally killed himself. He said, we spent days and days going without sleep, searching the scripture to try to come up with an answer as to why our son was killed. And he said the thing that we found out was not an answer to why our son was killed, but we found an answer to why we ought to be in church. They came to church. They both accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior and became very devout followers of Christ because of the influence of their son. I'm not saying that every person who is not a Christian will have a like experience, but I am saying that there are times that it needs, there's something drastic that has to happen to wake us up and to make us realize that we have something more important to do in life than to make a living to satisfy our physical needs. We've got a soul that needs cared for. And that tragedy brought these two people to that realization that there was more to life than the physical. And they will regret until the day they died that they didn't take their son's advice and go with him to church. And this is one of the tragedies that many parents face. Sometime later in life, they will regret that they did not go with their children. Many people send their children to church. Many a man wants his wife to go to church and wants his children to go to church, but he feels like that he doesn't need to go. Why? Because they think they can ride along on the coattails of the husband or of the wife or of the children or of the church. There are many people who think they will go to heaven because they somehow are affiliated with people who are Christians. And it just doesn't work that way. When Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, that very moment was the moment of the sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. And the high priest was making a sacrifice and was going to go behind the veil. You remember the temple was divided into different parts. There was a, a holy place out front where the people were, where most of the worship went. But at certain times, the high priest would go behind that veil, and there he would pray for the sins of the people out here. And God would hear his prayer. He would pray for them that their sins would be forgiven. That doesn't work that way anymore. I cannot pray your sins be forgiven and God forgive it because I pray. You've got to present yourself to Jesus Christ and ask for your own forgiveness you cannot get into heaven on somebody else's request. Now, we ought to pray for you if you're not a Christian. We ought to pray for non-Christian people. But let me tell you, the Scripture makes it very plain that a person is saved only by a personal encounter, a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. It must be personal. If you have not met him face to face, if you have not had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, you're lost and you're going to hell and nobody's prayer and nobody's church membership is going to save you. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's got to be what you do with your soul. And until you do something with it, you're lost. I was teaching a Sunday school class one time, 
had a preacher's wife in the in the car in the class. You know, that's a, that's really quite an encounter when a, when when a preacher has a preacher's wife. You know, in in the in the Sunday school class. Uh, this is a lot of fun. I, I'm I'm glad for you, Jackie. I'm glad to have Jackie. Um, it keeps me on my toes a little bit, you see, because she she's going to think of some things that a preacher does and whether he ought to or ought not do. And cricket's always on my toes about some of the things I do. So it's interesting to to have that. This preacher's wife uh, sat there in the congregation. She wasn't a Baptist, by the way, and she made this comment. She said, "I don't believe God will send anyone to hell." Now, I'm going to shock you. I agree with that. God does not send anyone to hell. As a matter of fact, He does everything in His power to prevent the person from going to hell. And over the mouth of hell, He erected a cross. And He put His Son on that cross. And if a person goes to hell, He must trample on the person of Jesus Christ. He must walk roughshod over the cross. He must ignore it and deny the blood that flowed from that cross in order to get there. But if you do that, you're going to end up in hell. Unless one receives Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he will never see the God of mercy, but he certainly will see the God of wrath. Jesus told us of the rich man who died and went to hell, and the scripture says, and in hell he lifted up his eyes in torment. Paul said to uh, the Thessalonians, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, that when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Did you hear what he said? Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's talking about a person who does not accept Jesus Christ. His destination is separation from God. Revelation 21.8 says, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and adulterers, all liars, shall have their place in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. How do you escape that? I'll tell you how you do it. You ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. And to save your soul. It's that simple. And then believe that he did it. Let me read you just a few verses on the positive side. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How can you have everlasting life? Believe in Jesus Christ. Accept him as your Savior. Hebrews 8.12 I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquity. I will remember no more. 
What's he talking about? A person who has, who has asked for forgiveness of their sins. The Lord says that he will forgive their sins and remember them no more. Remember them no more. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our text from 1 Timothy. We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. In whom are you trusting? In whom are you trusting? In what have you placed your trust? I think this is a very personal question. I hope you'll ask it of yourself. You need to know before you go out this door this morning whether or not you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm not asking you are you a member of the Tanita Baptist Church or any other church? I'm asking you to consider, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? That's the question. Have you put your trust in Him? Not in the might and the power of the world, not in physical wealth, not in position, but in Christ. If you have not asked the Lord to forgive your sin, I want to ask you to do it this morning. Now swallow your pride. Don't worry about what others might think, but worry about or be concerned about what the Lord thinks. If you are not a Christian, regardless of your church membership, if you have never genuinely in your heart received the Lord Jesus Christ, won't you do it this morning? We're going to sing a hymn, and I'm going to ask you to come down the aisle. Why do we do that? Why do we ask people to get out of the seat and come down front? I'll tell you why. The Lord said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my works in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. If you're not enough in tune with him to be willing to step out, you're ashamed of him. You cannot be a private Christian. I had a man come forward to service one time, and after the service was over, he, and he accepted Christ publicly, and he said, I want you to know I've been a Christian a long time. I just didn't tell anybody about it. And I said to him, I don't believe a word of it. You've never been a Christian. You can't be a private Christian. Don't just think you accept Christ in your heart, and that's always to it. You're going to have to tell somebody. And we're asking you this morning to tell this congregation that you are asking Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to save your soul because you want to trust in something that's got some security. Will you do it? Let us pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, meditate in your own heart and your own mind what your position is and your relationship is to Jesus Christ. Have you, in fact, trusted him for your salvation? Have you put your soul in his hands? If you have not, won't you do it this morning?
Our Father, we pray for every person who is considering this question in this congregation. We pray that you would forgive the sin of this, this sinner or these sinners who might pray for your forgiveness this morning. And in regards of their age, whether they're a young person, a teenager, or an adult, they will be willing to step out on faith, come forward before this congregation, and be glad to say in our presence and in your presence, I'm asking God to forgive my sins and to save my soul because I'm going to trust in him. Speak, our Father, very, very earnestly to any heart in this congregation who needs this this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn is 187. Will you respond to the invitation? 187.
help thy spirit in our midst this morning. We pray for these who have lifted up a hand and expressed a concern. Whatever is in the depths of our heart, thou of us know, and our Father, we pray for them in the church. We ask thy blessings upon them. They might yield themselves fully and completely into thy care. Others, <coughs> perhaps our Father, this congregation, who did not make a response, but yet have a need in the depths of their heart, may thy spirit be well with Bless us now as we depart from this service. May thy spirit be with us throughout this day and again tonight as we assemble to worship you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description. Thank you for listening, and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.